Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast, conversations with experts from around the globe about the discovery and creation of the future of higher education and lifelong learning. I am Jose Pepez Camilla, director of Tech Labs, an educational innovation unit of Tecnológico de Monterrey. Over the past three decades, I have been working on innovative pedagogies and learning technologies. I hope this EduTrends podcast will help us understand the future of learning. Today's guest is Alex Samuel. She is the executive director of MIT Solve, an initiative that aims to identify solutions to actionable challenges through open innovation. We discussed how Solve works, one of the most critical world challenges they are trying to tackle, and how powerful is the wisdom of the crowd. I hope you find our talk interesting. So um, I'm, uh, I arrived to Boston today, uh, just a couple of hours, and I'm very happy that I make it because I'm uh, having an interview with Alex Amuel. That's correct, your name? Yeah, absolutely. I pronounce it correctly? Okay, so you're French. Yes, I'm French originally. Okay. I'm British. Uh, I'm British both. Okay, that explains your excellent accent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so Alex is the executive director of MIT Solve. And MIT Solve is a project that MIT launched, let's say, to solve problems of the world using challenges and uh, with prices. Okay. So my my first question is, uh, why is MIT interested in asking other people to solve challenges when MIT is known by solving those challenges by itself? So MIT is well known for tackling big problems in the world. Yep, uh, absolutely. And welcome to Boston and especially the MIT campus. Um, so uh, MIT's mission, if you look at the, the mission statement, um, is about uh, solving world challenges and bettering humanity. Um, and you know, typically it's done that through educating the next generation of scientists and technologists and engineers and doing fundamental research. Um, but I, I think you know, there's a recognition and the Solve is, is, was founded sort of under the leadership of um, President Raphael Reif, um, uh, so MIT's president. Um, uh, there's a recognition that um, talent and ingenuity exist everywhere around the world. And that uh, while there are 20,000 people on MIT's campus, and uh, definitely some of the smartest <laughs> uh, collection of uh, people around the world, um, uh, MIT doesn't have all the answers. Um, and that there are innovators and technologists and entrepreneurs um, in, you know, in other universities, in other countries, in... Mexico, in Chile, in uh, Afghanistan, in Benin, uh, who have good solutions um, and are doing good work in their communities and are close to the problems that they're trying to solve, um, but they're not accessing, you know, uh, good resources, good expertise, funding, uh, mentorship, 
um, the things that are important, I'd say, in an innovation ecosystem uh, to be able to, to develop and scale. And so uh, the vision of Solve really um, is to support, um, to first find these entrepreneurs through, through those challenges and then to support these entrepreneurs with, you know, MIT's expertise and resources and convening powers, as well as a lot of bringing together a lot of other players from different sectors and different parts of the globe to, to, to help. So the, the idea is uh, to give those people opportunities that otherwise they will not get. Uh... Uh, yes, hopefully. Um, that, that, you know, the entrepreneurs... You know, the social entrepreneurs, just like entrepreneurs, always face, you know, issues around, you know, talent, funding, mentorship, business models, um, and they need, and it's a very lonely <laughs> task and they need help. And I think that that task is just, or these, these issues and that access is just magnified in different parts of the world. Obviously, if you're starting a company in Silicon Valley and it's software and you can demonstrate quick growth, customer acquisition growth. The Silicon Valley ecosystem, there's a lot of VCs, there are a lot of universities, there are a lot of talent that you can access. Equally, you're right now in the one square mile of the Kendall Square Innovation ecosystem, which is, you know, MIT is at the center of that, but then you have a lot of startups, $20 billion worth of VC funding in that square mile, mm -hmm. a lot of accelerators slash co-working spaces, a lot of the biotechs and a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. And so you have this incredible innovation ecosystem of money and talent and resources available if you're here and if you're in Silicon Valley and in a number of other places around the world. Um, but that's, that's, very, that's quite rare. That's not available in many parts of the world, and you and in, you know in many parts of the U.S. Even if, as soon as you get out of these hubs, um, it's much harder to access um, those resources. So how how can we create? It, you know, I don't claim to say that Solve is going to be as powerful as the Kendall Square Innovation Ecosystem in terms of its physicality, but how can you create a a more spread out virtual but global network to help social entrepreneurs wherever they are. They might be <laughs> also co-located in Boston, but they might be in Afghanistan or Mexico or Australia or where they are. And um, hopefully we can give help them with them and create that innovation ecosystem or a version of that. That sounds great. I think yeah. that uh, we are grabbing the attention of all the listeners that are entrepreneurs in those parts of the world that the ecosystem is not uh, as developed as it is in certain places. And why don't you tell us how it works? How? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So every year um, we launch challenges around education, health, economic prosperity, and sustainability. Um, so we ask a question, uh, which we spent quite a lot of time, you know, getting input from MIT faculty and other experts around the world about these types of refining the questions. So for example, right now on sustainability, we have a question on the circular economy and um, anybody can apply. 
You can be a non-profit, a for-profit, you can be an academic project, not registered as a formal organization. Anybody who has a good solution can submit their solution. Um, and uh, we have a series of expert judges um, who screen and select uh, finalists. And um, we invite the finalists to come to New York City during the UN General Assembly Week, which is going to be uh, this September. Um, September 21st, 22nd, and uh, 60 finalists come and they pitch their solutions. If uh, if you have Shark Tank in Mexico, it's sort of like Shark Tank, but for social entrepreneurs, they pitch their, they have three minutes and then the judges pepper them with questions. And then we select the, the judges select the most promising solutions and we look for you know, people who are really answering the challenge in their community, have a good promising tech-based solution. We look for the diversity and the types of technologies and types of geographies where people come from. And so it's a portfolio approach. We have, uh, we select a total of 32 solver teams across these four challenges. So we don't believe there's one answer and one winner. Um, these are complex challenges and there's lots of good these are early stage ideas, but by creating a diversified portfolio of solutions, uh, we hope we can help them. We hope they can help each other and that then our community of um, people both at MIT and, and our members around the world can, can help them. And there's so the challenges closed July 1st and there's $1.5 million of um, prize funding available um, so far this year. But um, uh, really, it's more than just the prize money. They take once they're selected in September, they take part in a nine-month program where we do a needs assessment. We understand what they're looking for. We connect them to then additional people, and we really hope that they're getting media exposure, conference exposure, additional funding, um, expertise from MIT mentors, um, and in a sense, we act as a a talent agency. Um, for these uh, social entrepreneurs, we're, we're really profiling them and helping them get connected to um, people who have resources to help them. Yeah, I, I was um, last year in the, uh, in the in the meeting during the General Assembly. I was lucky to be there attending another meeting of Wysen, and I took advantage and I saw the, the diversity of that group. I, I talked to several people and they were all very excited of the opportunity and. Uh, as you know, uh, we have been working with you to do something uh, together. And uh, um, the, met the metaphor that we use in Mexico for when we talk to other colleagues of what you do is to plant um, a startup garden and yeah. then uh, try to make it flourish no? during yeah. the next two to three years. You, you follow up those projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a good an analogy. Um, and I think we're very excited, you know, the opportunity as we go, we definitely, you know, as I mentioned, we do believe talent and ingenuity exist everywhere. And, uh, you know, this is the opportunity to partner with universities across Latin America and to um, help develop sort of the, the sort of local ecosystems and have local partners um, that then, you know, then help you know, help us realize our, our global mission in that sense. So very excited about that. Okay. Well, why do you think that um, open innovation or using collective intelligence to solve problems will be 
uh, important in the 21st century or not? Maybe it's just a niche. Uh... Um, so, you know, my view is um, that um, there are definitely some problems in the world where open innovation and collective intelligence are not going to be helpful. So if we think about nuclear fusion, <laughs> um, I don't think that that's probably the right place to do it. I think that other Some departments, research yes, or... I think that other departments at MIT and our other universities are working on this and should be working on this. And it, it takes, uh, you know, obviously millions of dollars of, and decades of research and decades of cross university collaborations to, uh, to make a dent in that. And that that's, you know, and that's an essential part of an, you know, thinking about a renewable energy portfolio. Uh, but equally, if I think, if I take a step back and think about, um, I guess, renewable energy and clean energy in general, whether or not uh, nuclear fusion is harnessed, I guess, um, uh, by humans in five years, 10 years, 20 years, uh, I don't think that that makes a difference or that's not going to make a much difference for the 2.7 billion people who today don't have access to affordable renewable energy on, on a sort of the basis that they need. Um, and that somebody in rural Liberia or rural Colombia and like needs a solution both today and even even if nuclear fusion was discovered tomorrow, that's not going to trickle down to to those people. Um, and so, you know, and thinking, and so then you're saying, okay, so what, what do, what, how do you design solutions and um, for those people? And are we talking, you know, it could be lots of things. It can be off-grid solar, it can be wind, it can be a series of other technologies that exist or don't or need to be adapted. But I think the question becomes, well, who, you know, then it's sort of, it's maybe less about like the fundamental research and really who, who is able to distribute it, adapt it, making it affordable, who understands who's working with these communities already mm -hmm. on the ground and, and doing things. So it's a different set of questions. And so then I think that that's where open innovation and collective intelligence have a, have a role to play and, and you know, Sol's platform owes quite a lot to MIT Climate Colab, which has been a project on collective intelligence out of Sloan um, for over a decade now and who's been sort of studying how we can think of climate change as problems that can be passed out for individuals to help solve. Exactly. So it has to have a combination of uh, uh, not a lot of deep research, but some entrepreneurship also, and maybe some knowledge I mean, of the local... Uh... So that's why we spend, we spend kind of six months defining the challenges, in a sense, and we ask ourselves, um, what is... The three questions we ask for defining the challenges really is, what is a problem that affects millions or billions of people? That's sort of easy. <laughs> uh, there's unfortunately too many of those still in the world today. Uh, and then the second question is the one that you're talking about, which is, is there early stage innovation on the ground, you know, as a prototype or the pilot, which is bubbling up and which is showing promise? Like we don't, um, 
we accept conceptual ideas in the application, but we only judge and only look at prototype, pilot, and early growth um, ideas. So you have to show traction, proof of concept, or prototype, at least, um, level. Um, so it has to be something that is being implemented in a, in a community already and is showing some progress. Um, and then, and so is there enough of that type of innovation? And that's the point. Nuclear fusion is not out of the lab. And so it's not a good, that's not a good question. And I would say that's not a problem. That's a solution. The problem is energy, right? Mm -hmm. And renewable exactly. energy and affordable energy. It's not, in fact, nuclear fusion already answering the question in that sense. And then the, and then third thing is, is there a coalition of partners that Solve can put together and MIT experts and other people who would be ready to support these entrepreneurs if we find them. <laughs> so we don't want to have a series of brilliant entrepreneurs and then nobody, we don't have the expertise and the support and the, the money to, to help them. So that's the sort of three questions you ask. And that second question goes to um, really saying, is there, is it ready for it to be an open innovation challenge. Okay, so those are the conditions to define a challenge. Why don't you give us a couple of examples of uh, challenges that you have run or you are yes. you're going to run? Well, in the, the ones next... that are open at the moment, yes, um, yes and they closed July 1st, um, is so uh, around for education, it's around early childhood development, so uh, critical learning skills and early cognitive development for children under five. And we know that uh, the first few years of life are absolutely critical to the development of our brains and the neural pathways. And there's a lot of people who at MIT who are studying that from a brain research point of view. Uh, several, as you walk down the campus, you can see several big buildings are devoted to brain research. Uh, notably the McGovern Institute, um, and um, and it's a huge um, problem or opportunity around uh, inequality, uh, economic inequality, the the um, the, for, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, um, says that there's no better investment. Um, in a human than investment in early development. Redevelopment. Um, yeah, the returns. It's also are, Heckman, not the economist, the Heckman equation that a uh, dollar invested in yes, the early yeah. it, is Yes, more... he won the Nobel Prize for that, exactly. So that would have been a better quote, if you're absolutely right. But the, so, you know, it's a huge um, issue or a huge opportunity to both, you know, help really set up people and to realize their full potential and and not have to catch up the education system afterwards, if you will, is always catching up to if people enter primary school or children enter primary school without a good foundation in the early years, they're forever catching up and that, that differential translates into economic um, poverty um, at the end of the day. So can we are there, and hopefully the answer is yes, sort of uh, who is working on good solutions to really help. Uh, and and what are the, the conditions or the criteria they have to meet to be the chosen ones? Or? 
so we look at, I mean, so basically if you go on the platform, we have a description of the challenge, which is more articulate than what I just told you. Uh, and then we have sort of avenues. We don't want to, as I mentioned, we don't want to say, suggest the solution, like okay. that you have to use this type of technology or that you have to, it has to, but we give sort of avenues, I would say, of the types of solutions we might expect, but um, but we don't want to be too prescriptive because some, answering the question is not helpful either if we answer our own question. Uh, so we want to leave it open for people to bring up solutions that perhaps we haven't thought about. Um, and, then, and then the overall criteria are going to be around... Um, uh, alignment to the challenge, scalability, potential for impact, innovation, feasibility, and so, and then the judges basically evaluate um, the the solutions on the basis and score um, on the basis of those criteria, and then they advance to the finals if they're if they're if they're in the top sixty. That's great. You have some. Uh, you, you have been running uh, MIT Solve since uh, 2016, am mm -hmm. I right? Yeah. Uh, and do you have some um, examples of uh, winners of past competitions that are starting to make these uh, changes in the world? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, some that are um, exciting um, are. Um, in Indonesia, for example, I'll give you an example in Indonesia and then one also in, uh, at least from Brazil. Um, in Indonesia, we have a uh, speaker called Iman, um, who runs Ruanguru Digital Bootcamp, and it's an online subscription model for education. So similar to Netflix, in a sense, or Khan mm -hmm. Academy or Coursera, but... Um, very well adapted to the Indonesian curriculum, lots of partnerships with the government, the ministries, different schools. And so it follows the Indonesian national curriculum and uh, children, you know, you, have, you pay a subscription fee and then you have videos, you have exam prep, you have, you can have like micro tutoring if you don't understand this particular, you know, you could have 15 minutes of a tutor or that type of um, thing. And it's, um, you know, the product, in a sense, is targeted to um, people who can't afford private school and who can't afford private tutors, because in practice, uh, the PISA scores um, in Indonesia are really, really low, the PISA scores being the international assessments on education, and the public schools not really delivering um, good content. So this is a remedial sort of product, and I think what's interesting is already... Uh, Iman was pretty well established in the sense of having 2 million subscribers um, in Indonesia when he applied to Solve. He's grown to over 10 million subscribers um, since. Uh, I'm not sure the exact numbers now, but pretty big. Uh, and he, um, we, have, we have a partnership with the Australian government and Atlassian Foundation, um, who's particularly interested in this uh, question about... Um, how do youth develop the skills for the workforce of the future? That was the mm. challenge he applied for. And he got money. He's a for-profit company. Um, and, you know, his target market is probably middle-class, low-middle-class Indonesians. And in this case, the money he got and the, the partnership was really 
um, to develop a non-profit product for out-of-school Indonesians and really people who couldn't afford um, a product. Uh, or, well, to, to help, like, remedial training so okay. that they can connect back okay. into back school. To school. Yeah, back. not that they don't go to school at all, but that they can sort of catch up sort of curricula, if you will. Okay. Um, so I think that that's pretty interesting in that sense to, to think about that. Um, and that, you know, corresponds well to the type of thing that MIT does in terms of online education and, and online courses. Exactly. And, exactly. But sort of seeing that that model has now been pushed in a much, you know, different direction and all around the world is pretty interesting. And then, um, so in, uh, in Latin America, notably, uh, Carlos is from Brazil. He now lives in Florida and um, is an engineer originally. His daughter, um, unfortunately, had, uh, has cerebral palsy and he and a nonverbal disability. She, and he wasn't, you know, he obviously had trouble communicating um, with his daughter and also very difficult for her to learn. And so he developed and, you know, the, the past a lot of the things that existed, I think we all know, like Stephen Hawking and like how he would communicate in his robot voice. But, and, you know, he was one of the more people who had access to more of that technology than maybe some other people who both couldn't afford it or wouldn't have the, that type of thing. But still there hasn't been a lot of innovation in that. So he developed a tablet-based um, software that is much more intuitive as to how you can communicate um, uh, because the tablet sort of market has evolved compared to how uh, it used to. Millions of tablets. Uh, exactly, and they're much more affordable, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and it's both a tool to communicate uh, with uh, any people with nonverbal disabilities, um, but also for them to learn. Um, and, you know, what started as a project for him to be able to communicate with the daughter now extends to um, not only sort of nonverbal developmental disabilities, such as, I guess, cerebral palsy and, um, and, and other uh, maybe forms of extreme forms of autism and other things, but also, um, also for degenerative diseases such as ALS or even Parkinson's or, or some of the things where like people sort of um, have issues sort of later in life. So um, that's pretty interesting as a, as a innovation and as a yeah, Very interesting. I, I think I'd make him in New York. He was there. Oh, yeah. Well, he was pitching and he, he was got pitching, selected. Yes, yes, yeah, that, yeah. Yes, so that, he's one of our... And he got, um, you know, he definitely got a number of prizes from different um, partners of ours, notably mm -hmm. General Motors. Mm -hmm. Uh, who was pretty interested in thinking, you know, as they're focused on developing autonomous vehicles, you know, people with disabilities who can't drive mm -hmm. are hopefully going to benefit tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, talk all about the sort of negative aspects of autonomous vehicles, but some of the very positive aspects of uh, autonomous vehicles is people who can't drive for various reasons, mobility um, being a big one. Um, being able to, and then so imagine if 
um, people with nonverbal disabilities are able to communicate with the car. Let's see. That's a, too early on, but... <laughs> two, two great examples of um, uh, successful uh, projects. So uh, you've been for around three years or something in, in uh, MIT Solve. How do you think MIT Solve will be in five years? Um, well, one of uh, our advisors, uh, in fact, Nubar Afayan, who, who runs something called Flagship Pioneering, which is a sort of venture R&D firm here in, in Cambridge and very successfully launched a, a big, a large number of companies and, and mostly in the life sciences. Um, he was recently saying to me, he was like, you mustn't um, have a vision on three to five years it has to be on 10 years so because it's okay we need you need to have there is space for miracles and you need to be unreasonable and have unreasonable goals and three to five years is too reasonable um so uh, so yeah so i'm going to change your question and <laughs> think about uh 10 years you know and i think 10 years you know i think we're really out to show it taking a step back you know um I'm sure your listeners are aware of the the ambitious targets the United Nations have set around the Sustainable Development Goals, which um, we should be in 10 years' time. We need to be close to 2030, which is the deadline. And you know, we're um, those are pretty ambitious targets. And we talk uh, all the sort of social impact community talks often about the financing gap, the $2.5 trillion of money per annum that we're missing if we are going to achieve the SDGs. So people, you know, talk a lot about the need for governments and the private sector and philanthropy to really cough up more money if we are going to um, to really have a dent in these, cha in, in these goals. Um, what I think we're not talking about as much, and I would like us to, and hopefully Solve can play that role, be one of the players playing that role, is the innovation gap. Is saying, do we really think, even if we had all this money suddenly, um, do we think that the solutions that exist today, uh, that those, with that money, we could solve the and refugees and people living in rural Liberia and uh, people with disabilities would suddenly get all the education they need and the health care they need and escape um, poverty as per some of the goals. Um, and suddenly I think the answer is currently no. We need to invest in innovation and innovative ideas that address these SDGs. And in doing so, we should also be able to reduce the unit costs of solving these problems. So actually maybe the financing gap starts to go down if the innovation gap starts to go down. And so, yeah, in 10 years, I hope Solve has played a big role in, in driving innovation towards the SDGs and recognizing it's, you know, those the social entrepreneurs and the people, these people are doing good work already in their communities. They exist. They the talent and the ingenuity and the entrepreneurial spirit exists. Um, but do they really, you know, do they succeed or do they get, you know, do they suffocate in the early stage and or or do they succeed in, in a community somewhere, but they never really grow and expand and their idea, this amazing idea developed in 
you know, in Brazil, does it, could it be scaled across the continent of Latin America and well, in North America and across the world? Um, and so if we can really be this marketplace for social impact innovation, and if the solver teams we select can do good work and be recognized and validate their business model and their impact, and then connect to people that could really scale their, help them scale their solution, um, that would be good. So I think that's sort of the 10-year the vision is really having showing a dent on innovations towards um, that solve real problems um, and, and, and you know, notably the, the sustainable development goals. Very ambitious and I, I hope that you're successful and we will try to help you also. Yes, uh, please. <laughs> you were talking about social um, and entrepreneurs. Uh, are they a special kind of entrepreneurs? What? Um... Um, I, I, I would like to think not. I mean, I th yes, in one sense. I mean, the because they're not motivated uh, by money, <laughs> you know, fundamentally. They're motivated by solving world problems and, and solving um, and doing good in the world, right? Um, now, um, you know, we have 50% non-profit and 50% for-profit social entrepreneurs. Uh, so while, and, you know, we select them based on their ability to, uh, the promise that they uh, could impact these challenges. So we select them for, you know, their potential ability to do good in the world. Um, but some of them are definitely, the, the 50% that are for profit also think they can make money <laughs> um, and obviously create jobs and, and stimulate the economy in in the process of, and as I mentioned, the Ruanguru um, Digital Bootcamp is a very much a for-profit and sells their subscriptions very successfully <laughs> uh, to now over 10 million. So know, social entrepreneurship easy. is uh, not um, uh, fighting with uh, uh, an economic model. The, uh, I mean, the, we we define, so different people define social. Some people would say it's social entrepreneurs are only the for-profit, but we, we definitely have an expansive view that you can be a social entrepreneur and be a non-profit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that the difference with a typical entrepreneur is going to be that you are um, really trying to, you know, positively impact the world. And that's hopefully the criteria that you are maximizing uh, as opposed to maximizing profit. Um, but I also think those things become more and more indistinguishable um, in the sense that really, um, you know, again, going back to our question about energy, um, there might be some people who disagree with me, but, you know, the future of energy and the money to be made and energy going forward is going to be on these new renewable technologies and really uh, developing, you know, solar, wind, wave, and and things that harness, um, that are clean, that are, you know, renewable, that are cheap, and that, you know, can give access to huge new markets. Um, so you can still, you know, I think they'll be more and more indistinguishable that you are doing, you are doing good in the world and you're making money. Well, that's my hope, but. 
Um, now um, a little bit more personal about your career yeah. and what you think. Uh, before being here, I understand you were on the Clinton Foundation, am I right? Mm -hmm, Can absolutely. you tell us a little bit what you were doing there? Uh, yeah, so for about four and a half years, I was the director of program for the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, CGI, based in New York, which um, uh, which is where I moved. I moved to New York from from London and from Save the Children actually uh, to take this job, and um, and so this is um, um, President Clinton's uh, as well as Chelsea and Hillary's foundation. Um, and really, I was in charge of developing the program. I was in the content, the speakers um, for the the big meetings, the annual meeting, and the these uh, number of other meetings, uh, as well as uh, government relations. And we've met with sort of eighty heads of state every year, so, um, so quite uh, quite a lot of people and 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 the big job. And and you know, I think CGI. Um, um, was you know really important in establishing um, the field of sort of public-private partnership and of sort of coalitions of uh, of people across sectors working together and and really helping to develop um, um, some of the emerging ideas around you know good social entrepreneurship and also businesses sort of doing good. Um, and doing well and things like that. So yeah, so that's sort of um, part of the my history. So there. save the children, Clinton, and now MIT solve. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm trying to find out what are the things you're passionate about. Uh, well, definitely social impact um, and you know saving <laughs> the world and saving children. No, but um, yeah, definitely sort of positively impacting the world and I think Save the Children previous to that was very different. I was I was a management strategy consultant before Save the Children and I entered Save the Children in that type of role. So I was doing a lot of um finance, HR, process, grant management, monitoring evaluation things, um uh, and also traveling to different country offices and helping to to sort of make the um, the way that Save the Children ran more effective and efficient in that sense. Um, and um, and sort of, and then moving to the Clinton Foundation was much more about setting the agenda for the people setting the agenda, if you will, and helping a very different, you know, Save the Children is a very on-the-ground organization. The Clinton Global Initiative was more about convening people to move millions of dollars and sort of change this and then solve is you know an ecosystem builder if you will but supporting these get going back in a sense to the the field level but we're one step removed but you know working with people who are really working on the ground on communities and innovation so you know I think I've had a lot of different levels where I'm playing in my career and my social impact field overall, but um, they're all very much aligned to to sort of trying to make the world a better place, which is also MIT's mission. <laughs> Fascinating. Great. And most of our listeners are um, educators of uh, people that work in, in educational institutions. Yeah. So uh, maybe one question they are asking themselves is, can I apply these ideas of open innovation 
of MIT Solve in my uh, workplace, in my institution, in my school, in my university? What uh, would you answer? Yeah, to that? and there's like um, definitely there's ways to work very easily with MIT Solve. First of all, so uh, encouraging. Uh, you know, anybody at the, the universities or in the educational institutions to apply if they have a good solution and to submit their solution. Uh, a lot of universities um, work, uh, or even student clubs, as you know, it's not necessarily the heads of the universities, but um, you can, we have a Solvathon toolkit for people who want to host a Solvathon, which is like a prototyping session to help um, can be downloaded students. From your site. Uh, it's not quite downloaded. We want to check that uh, okay. you don't make a profit on on okay. the you know you. So we we sort of but okay. yes, we have a toolkit that you can email us and okay, ask great. us for it. So we do check your not going to abuse it, um, but uh, but you can get involved in you know and many a lot of our solvathons are done remotely. We don't send staff. They're done. Um, like that. Um, we have a number of universities who are members of Solve and who um, who are part of the network and uh, send people to our events and also then, you know, host more of these, these more formally as well as sort of input on the challenges and a number of things. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's sort of both a way... Um, we get lots of applicants from MIT, um, both students, faculty, but also alumni um, who get involved. Um, and we definitely don't you know, prioritize them, um, but, but um, a number of them do, do make it as solver teams. Um, and I think that that's uh, universities. You know, I was just at lunch with um, a good friend, uh, such mentor of mine, and we were quickly discussing about um, how one day we should write a book, whether or not we'll ever do it, on what is the role of a university in the 21st century, mm -hmm. right? And I think that going back to how we started, that MIT's mission is uh, a number of universities' missions are more about, you know, education and research, which, which is great and which is fundamentally what a university has been doing, right? Um, but what I think is amazing and some universities are similar and some universities are different is MIT's mission, it includes education and research, but it really is fundamentally about bettering humanity. And um, if you take that as the mission of the university and what are the tools that you use and how are you not, you know, the accusations that universities are ivory towers mm -hmm. and closed and elitist and are producing knowledge for the sake of knowledge as opposed to applying it to to the world and how are they relevant in the 21st century and how they play a role um, and you know when you look at the dome of MIT it's about um, it's about uh, applying knowledge uh, it's not just about um, producing knowledge um, that's what's written on the dome um, so I think that that's sort of a I think, but, and universities are these incredible pools of talent, of, um, of, they are these incredible ecosystems to begin with, if you will. And so how do they harness the, the talent, the resources that they have to, to be open and to drive innovation and to, 
um, and to not be ivory towers that are disconnected from the problems that their countries, their communities and the world faces, I think is it's a good question for each university, <laughs> I would say, for each university to ask itself and to to try. I'm not saying they all have to do solve-a-thons and solve and et cetera, but I think if they can think about open innovation, that's um, that's important to, to stay relevant in the 21st century and to... Um, to respond to both, you know, both the demands of the world, um, but also the demands of the students, and uh, who I think more and more students want, you know, you, you go to university because you want to join a corporate job, and a lot of students nowadays both want to do something that impacts the world, mm -hmm, and they want mm -hmm. to do it themselves and be entrepreneurs in that sense. So, I agree with you. So, um, applying these ideas of open innovation in particular um, with these challenges that are representative of the challenges of the humanity. It's a way of um, tearing down the walls of the university and connecting with the world, yeah. but also uh, as well as uh, uh, this ivory tower concept that you say, there are a lot of silos in the university and real problems are not divided in silos. No, it's yeah. not a math problem or a nutrition problem. It's uh, problems are multidisciplinary by nature. I think it's fascinating. That yeah, and somebody else I, I spoke with, and I would tell you the names of these people, but I don't I don't have their authorization to quote them. So, um, but um, you know, what is a student? What does a major look like today? Is also a big question that um, that is worth asking. I think is it that you should be um, an engineer or mathematician, etc., or how do you have which yes, there are technical specializations that are important, but then there's like thematic specializations. So can you also, you know, be have enough knowledge or be specialized in educate, you know, could you be an engineer, but also really have knowledge around on how engineering might be applied to education or to health or to energy um, and that you, the, And what is, you know, certainly around a university like MIT, and I also take the Monterey, uh, what are the ethical implications and the social implications of the technologies that you are working on and developing? And what are the, what is the relationship between technologists and policymakers? And how do you, how does a student come out with, yes, a major in AI and <laughs> deep, you know, data science, deep learning, et cetera, et cetera, but also has really enough of the ethical and social knowledge um, to, to be able to apply that both to the world problems and also recognize the, the implications of the world, things they are doing. And it's not solely, I would say, it's not solely on the responsibilities of the students and the technologists, policymakers also need to regulate and there's lots of other things we can talk about around that, but it's, um, I think that that's it would be valuable uh, to, to to you know, and and these are questions I think you know the MIT is very much asking itself, um, mm -hmm. but I, I think I think many universities are thinking about that broader question is what is the role of a university in the 21st century? Yes, that's that's a question that we at uh, Tech Monterey ask ourselves every day, and and in part now I'm I'm realizing there's a relationship with what you were saying about uh, open innovation because our New educational model, Tech 21, is 
uh, heavily based on challenges, real world challenges. Yeah. We're a real, um, I would say, client, and we call that client the formative partner of the yeah. student because uh, that person can be a, a, in an, ONG, an NGO, yeah. government, or even an enterprise. And uh, they have also skin of the game on um, connecting with a student and uh, yeah. developing the skills and uh, abilities that are multidisciplinary and also not only disciplinary, but also those um, horizontal skills. Uh, yeah, those... uh, teamwork. Yeah, but exactly what, yeah. And I think any, you know, when we've shown the project-based learning and, and, you know, students working on things that are relevant <laughs> to the world and it's just a much better educational experience and they're much more useful ones and <laughs> than, than sort of learning out of books and talk. <laughs> Great. So uh, for, for listeners, maybe if you can uh, tell us uh, a URL or an email where they can ask for these uh, tools or... Uh... Uh, so solve.mit.edu is our website. Uh, you can see the challenges, you can apply, you can comment, you can vote, you can get in touch with our team if you want to mentor, if you want to host a solve-a-thon, if you, join, if you want to join as a member. Uh, I think our general email address is solve.mit.edu, but if you go on the website and you're interested in, say, the solve-a-thons, there might be a more specific email you can directly but if you're not sure, I think solve.mit.edu is the default. <laughs> Great, but uh, so the, those are the resources that are available, and I think that you gave us a, a lot of ideas and open us uh, some possibilities on how to uh, really tackle those problems of humanity and also how to keep universities relevant. That uh, is one of the things that I like uh, to talk in this uh, show. Uh, so thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. For your time and your thoughts. Look forward to hearing from your listeners. <laughs> thanks. And uh, thanks to our listeners also to be with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash podcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.